Good morning. Our next case is Department of Transportation versus Bloomsbury Estate LLC and Bloomsbury Estate Condominium Homeowners Association, Inc. We will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court, my name is Jay Ferguson, and it is indeed my privilege and pleasure today to be before your honors representing Bloomsbury Estates LLC. Mr. Chief Justice, I would respectfully reserve eight minutes for rebuttal. We all learned in law school probably the first week, if not the first day of real property law, that uh, when we look at real property rights, there are a bundle of rights, uh, or a bundle of sticks, if you will, and we all know that analogy. And in this case, uh, that elementary rule of real property law intersects with eminent domain law. And specifically, the, the mandate uh, from our case law and from our statute that requires evaluation to be as of the date of taking and not by because of some future date. And we will look at that bundle of sticks and bundle of rights later. First, I'd like to walk through just briefly the project of where it was as of the date of taking. This is a DOT aerial map. If I step back, I hope you can still hear me. Uh, this is an aerial map that's on page 101 of the, of the uh, uh, 9D exhibits. It's uh, prepared by the DOT. I've colorized the lines. The green line around is what was the subject tract as of the date of taking. Uh, the DOT took two areas. This was in July of 2017. They took between the red line and the green line in fee simple. And then they took the uh, yellow line, between the yellow line and the red line as a temporary construction easement. And on the date of taking in the northern half of the property was a phase one development, Bloomsbury Estates. Uh, it consisted of 56 uh, individually owned uh, condominium units. They had all been sold. The, the southern portion of the property uh, below this roadway here uh, was what was to be phase two. As of the date of taking, there was an old warehouse on the property, but that was going to be torn down and phase two later developed. Uh, each of the in unit holders in phase one got a tax bill uh, for their individual units. And in phase two, Bloomsbury Estates, the developer, and by the way, Bloomsbury Estates is just a sole manager member LLC, you may hear me use the name John Brockle. He's the developer in the case. Um, he got the tax, or Bloomsbury Estates got the tax bill for many years for phase two. The DOT instituted this action, uh, and the parties before the court today were jointly represented, uh, and at that time uh, settled with the Department of Transportation for $3.95 million. Uh, after cost of litigation and attorney's fees and expenses, uh, there's a, there was about, I'm rounding off here, about $3 million uh, but that then needed to be apportioned between these two parties. The, uh, after the consent judgment was entered, uh, the developer filed a motion to disperse the condemnation proceeds. At that time, uh, the developer, excuse me, the homeowners association filed a motion uh, indicating that uh, they challenged, they at least uh, indicated that the Fifth Amendment to the Declaration of Condominium was invalid. And that was, that then put that issue before the court. 
Uh, now, the Fifth Amendment, what, as of the date of taking, the developer had until July of 2015 uh, to, excuse me, yeah, to, 2015 to develop the property. The Fifth Amendment extended those development rights for two more years. So if, if the uh, development rights, if the, if the Fifth Amendment was invalid, the, de the developer would not have had any development rights. And we know that, so in this case, what was taken from the developer and then the developer's bundle of sticks, if you will, the developer had the development rights, and we know from all the appraisers below that the real value in this phase two property is not who owns the title or the units, it's who has the development rights, because that's the only value in the phase two property. And, and, the, and specifically, uh, Ms. Edmonds, Catherine Edmonds, the appraiser for the Homeowners Association, testified in her deposition that if the Fifth Amendment is valid, that the developer gets 100% of the phase two value. That's the Homeowners Association evidence. The, the part, because of the partial taking, now the fee simple taking was not problematic for future development because that was, that's a permanent taking and it, it is what it is. DOT now owns that property. This, however, prevented any development, that this being the temporary construction easement, which all parties contemplated as being in place uh, that would extend past the developer's development rights, uh, would prevent any development of the phase two property while that temporary construction easement was, was in place because there simply was not enough building envelope left. And I mean, this, this phase was what's called pad ready. Utilities were in place. Everything was there. All that needed to be done was to build the structure. The site plan had been approved. In the court below, the Fifth Amendment was rendered valid by Judge Ridgway in an ancillary action. Counsel, why wasn't the validity of the Fifth Amendment litigated in the DOT action? Well, the, the 2015 action sought really the, the thrust of the 2015 action was to reform the Fifth Amendment to extend the development rights under uh, equitable principles because of legal impossibility for constructing the property. And one of the claims within that 2015 action, before you get to the reformation, is to establish that, that, that it was valid. So it wasn't that in the 2015 action that they were seeking to validate the Fifth Amendment for the purposes of the equitable excuse me, for the eminent domain action, it was part of that 2015 litigation to establish that the, the Fifth Amendment was valid and therefore we need a trial to determine whether under equitable principles the, the uh, development rights would be extended. And that was, that was filed uh, as soon as it became known to the developer that that was an issue because at the time everyone was operating under the principle that the Fifth Amendment uh, was valid. And as soon as the developer learned of that, he filed the action to then try to reform it. But why was what, what that action? Um, it had there was no final judgment in that action at the time that you reached the question of apportionment in the condemnation proceeding, right? That's correct. So wh why wouldn't the condemnation proceeding just uh, continue on its own track? That these, it these are fact questions that need to be resolved. 
then they have to be resolved in this case with no reference to, you know, there may be other lawsuits that are looking at the same thing. That may be a reason to consolidate, which I think we'll get talk more about that later. But at least from the Court of Appeals, and I'm a little hesitant now because I learned in the last case not to always trust what's in the Court of Appeals opinion, but the, they seem to be focused on the fact that there are issues in the other cases that had to be resolved before you could enter a judgment in the condemnation case. And I'm struggling to understand how that could be so because you could just answer the question in the condemnation proceeding. The, the issue of whether the Fifth Amendment was valid very clearly could be answered within the uh, eminent domain action. There's no question about that. Whether a legal document, the Fifth Amendment uh, con to the condominium uh, association could be reformed is a future event. And, and the elementary principle in the eminent domain laws, we look at, we take a snapshot of the property as of the date of taking and what existed. And as of the date of taking, the developer held the development rights, which were very valuable, and then had a little sliver of a stick of the right of legal standing to file a lawsuit for reformation. There's, there's no way that a court would allow in an, a 136-108 hearing to change the circumstances as they existed as of the date of taking. The, the reformation did not exist as of the date of taking. That would have to be decided in a, a separate lawsuit. But did the, did the trial court in the condemnation proceeding resolve the question of whether the amendment was valid or not? The trial court did, but relied on the prior ruling of Judge Ridgway in the 2015 action. And but, was this before or after those were consolidated? I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, it was before the consolidation. Right. But, so but I want to be clear. What I'm struggling with is what, why shouldn't the trial court have said, I, this is a question that needs to be resolved for apportionment in the condemnation case. I just need to find, and the fact that some other court may be doing it in another proceeding right now, that's wonderful, but I need to do it independently here. And uh, either that or bring the actions all together. And then another trial court that's made this finding, if we're now consolidated, it might be binding in this proceeding. I mean, it seems like there's one or two tracks. And I, what's confusing me is the Court of Appeals seemed to say, you must rely on these things from these other two cases where there's fact questions, but also you don't consolidate the cases. And I can't put those two things together in my mind. That's what I'm struggling with. Well, first of all, the Court of Appeals didn't cite a single case from this court for the proposition that those other lawsuits have to be decided before the compensation. And if you look at De Brule, Black, other cases cited in my brief, it's what exists as of the date of taking. Just we, we, we could have had a second hearing on the validity of the Fifth Amendment within the 108 hearing, but that had already been decided and fully the legal issue about whether the statute of limitations applied in the, in the 2015 action had been fully litigated with the exact same parties. So it was race judicata and, uh, based on principles of collateral stop on issue preclusion, it was applied in this case. But, but there was no final judgment in that other case on those issues, right? There was a final judgment, no, no final judgment in that case, that's correct. Mm -hmm. But clearly before this court, that issue is not before this court because the, in the Court of Appeals on page 16 of the uh, association's brief, they abandoned the issue and specifically indicated that they are, quote, abandoning its challenge to the trial court's finding that it was bound by Judge Ridgway's uh, 12 September 2017 order. So they have abandoned that issue. 
So as we sit here today, the Fifth Amendment is valid for the purposes of deciding this case. Uh, that if they, they go on to say that they may challenge the Fifth Amendment validity in the 2015 action, they're in an appeal of that action. But for the purposes of this case, that issue is not before the court. So we have, and I hope I answered your question. The let, let me just follow up on that though. How, how can there be reliance on an interlocutory order that hasn't been appealed because, I mean, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, there could be a distribution of funds that ultimately would have been found inappropriate. Well, first of all, there, there was an appeal from that, uh, from Judge Ridgway's order, the, the association uh, entered notice of appeal with the Court of Appeals, but then voluntarily abandoned that appeal. So there was an appeal from that order. But, but, but it's a still party a has a right. Judgment. A party has a right to wait until there's a final judgment to bring an appeal with any of the judgments in, uh, that have the interlocutory judgments that have arisen, right? Yes, in that case, there are instances in eminent domain where it's required, but that's correct for that 2015 case. I think the, the, the question gets to be why shouldn't they have the right to get a final judgment on the um, on the on this issue before there's a distribution of proceeds they they can they they have not abandoned that right in the 2015 action and they can litigate that on appeal at the conclusion of the 2015 action what happens if they win if they win in in the 2015 saying the fifth amendment is invalid then the developer would have no interest in the condemnation. What if the program. money's already been distributed? The money has been distributed, but. Oh, it's already been distributed yes. at this point? Yes. And, but I, and I also want to point out in this case, on the rec, in the record on page 17, the parties signed a consent judgment when they settled with the DOT. And the parties, as a finding of facts, uh, in, in the order signed by Judge Stevens, it says, as of the date of the institution of this action, the property described in the complaint and declaration of taking was subject only to such liens and encumbrances as were set forth in Exhibit A of the complaint and declaration of taking. Exhibit A of the, of the uh, complaint and declaration of taking is on page three of the record, and it specifically lists the Fifth Amendment as an encumbrance on the property. If the association's argument is correct that it was void ab initio, the Fifth Amendment was void ab initio, they, wouldn't, they should not have consented to a judgment that says otherwise. That judgment is in this particular case and has never been challenged. So they have, they have essentially stipulated that the Fifth Amendment is a valid encumbrance on the property. The, the two legal issues that I think are the most critically important in the case are that the, the lower court, as uh, Justice Dietz indicated, says that the other ancillary collateral cases have to be resolved before the issue of compensation, and that's just not correct. Every case from this court has always said that you look at the, the property and those property rights, that bundle of sticks, as of the date of taking. 
and the valuation can't be determined until the trial, until, excuse me, the valuation can't be determined based upon some possible future event. Now, whether the document is reformed or not is a, is a principle of equity, and a trial court will be in a position to see what the equities in this case are. That they, the trial court will then take into account the development costs, uh, delay caused by the governmental intervention of this project, and all of those equities and weigh whatever equities the association wants to come forward with to decide whether to extend the development rights under the Fifth Amendment. Uh, but there again, that's an issue for a trial court, an evidentiary ruling will be required for that. The, the other issue is that all issues are required to be resolved in a 136-108 hearing. And this issue was resolved in a 136-108 hearing. And now, uh, any, any additional issues that the association believes that may be necessary uh, should have been raised in the 108 hearing because after that, the only issue is the apportionment of the money between the two parties. Can I ask you why, why did the trial court consolidate these matters and then right before the entering the, or, the December 4th order, basically unconsolidated them again? What, what was the purpose of that? The, the purpose was because once the judge had entered the order saying uh, I'm, the, the money is to be dispersed pursuant to a, a particular formula that was set forth in the Homeowners Association appraisal, that ended the eminent domain case. So there was nothing else to be resolved in that case except ministerial matters of uh, allotting prejudgment interest uh, and, final, and entering a final judgment. But so is there something in like chapter 136 that would, uh, that would make it problematic to enter that judgment in the condemnation proceeding but allow that same consolidated case then to go on on the other issues? Or, or was this just sort of the courts trying to clean up its docket and that is why it split it off again when it entered the judgment? Well, I'm the one who filed the motion to, I, I don't know if I couch this, motion for reconsideration of the order of consolidation. But my, my argument was that the 2015-2016 case, yes, those or most, I, most judges will consolidate those two actions. But the eminent domain case stands alone without respect to what may happen in the future because of the date of valuation that I keep talking about. And because the judge had ruled in that consolidation order that the, the damages are to be apportioned by a particular formula, that ends the case except for the entry of the final judgment. So. The court reconsidered the consolidation order and broke off the, the three cases, consolidating the civil litigation that's pending in Wake County and finalizing the eminent domain case so that case can be ended. What issues remain in the uh, two civil actions? Uh, have the, they been consolidated into one at this point? Yeah, that's correct, Your Honor. Uh, the 2015 action primarily is a reformation claim. There is a breach of contract claim uh, based, upon, based upon the arguments that the uh, Fifth Amendment was a breach of the Fifth Amendment, a repudi, I'm sorry, anticipatorily breach of the Fifth Amendment when uh, the developer got a letter from the Homo Association disavowing the Fifth Amendment. So there is that breach of claim breach of contract claim. But that essentially 
uh, has been resolved with the court determining the Fifth Amendment is valid. So the big issue in the 2015 case is whether the court will allow uh, equitable reformation to allow the developer to get the benefit of his bargain and the opportunity uh, to, to bear the fruits of his labor. The 2016 case has about 12 claims. Uh, there are issues, I think three of those claims involve ownership of parking. That has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about today. There are, and then other issues deal with uh, another supplemental declaration, declaration that has nothing to do with this case. And then some of the issues are essentially what we're talking about, uh, except that the validity of the Fifth Amendment has been resolved, so that issue's over. Now, so if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, the only uh, issues that are germane to, or that actually would have or could have been decided in the uh, 108 hearing was the validity of the Fifth Amendment. That's the only issue that I raised uh, below because that issue was put into play when uh, the, a pleading was filed by the association saying that the Fifth Amendment wasn't valid. Once that motion was filed, I felt it incumbent upon the court to resolve the Fifth Amendment issue before disbursement of the claim because that, the, the validity of the Fifth Amendment matters in the disbursement. And, and that's the only issue that was ever raised below. Just to follow up on the Chief Justice's question, what, when the Court of Appeals, though, said there are these fact issues in those two cases that need to be resolved first, what, what other than the Fifth Amendment, what could they have been talking about? Uh, I, they're talking about whether the, whether the trial court reforms the Fifth Amendment to allow an extension of the developer's rights. But there again, that's okay, and your after theory the date is that doesn't matter. Okay. Right. So you think the other issues they might have been talking about all hinge on this idea that things that happen after the time of the taking are somehow relevant to apportionment? Correct. Okay. I, I think that's a fair assessment. I'll, I will review that again before I stand up and rebuttal, but I think that's a fair assessment. And the um, – the, so – as of the date of taking, the rights of the parties were known. And those rights were the developer's rights, which had great value in this slender bundle of sticks that, we, that I've talked about. And, and anything that happens after that date is something that we don't look at. I've cited the case of Sparger as a Court of Appeals opinion, but I think it's, I think it's instructive as to how the court looks at that. And in that case, a sewer fallout, a sewer line outfall was uh, put in and land was condemned for that. And during construction, there was a, uh, a sewage spill causing damage to the land. And the court said, no, you can't litigate that issue in the date of taking because that happened after the date of taking. Same thing here. On the date of taking, he had the, the legal standing to seek reformation. It had no marketable interest. No willing buyer uh, would pay for the opportunity to file a lawsuit to seek reformation and have 10 years of litigation. It's just not marketable, but it was valuable to him. So now the developer gets to go in a separate lawsuit 
to try to convince a court, and we don't know if it's going to be successful, but to try to convince the lower court that principles of equity, because of the money he's got invested in this project and his hope for a positive outcome, uh, and yours to his benefit. And the association can put in whatever equity they, they I believe, is in their uh, side of the weighting scale. Uh, but the, the case law has always been clear that issues regarding title and such have to be resolved in a 136-108 hearing. So if, if, they, if the association believed that they needed to have this reformation claim resolved in the 136-108 hearing, it should have asked for it, but didn't. And at that point, the case was, after the 108 hearing, the case is ready for apportionment. And that's what uh, the court did follow the mandates of the Condominium Act, which is to first pay the unit holder full value, unit holder phase two being the developer, and then anything left over goes to the homeowner association for common elements. That's another intersection of condominium law within respect to eminent domain law, and the, and the court did exactly that. Uh, I will, would, unless there's any questions, I would respectfully reserve the remainder of my time, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, if it may please the court, I'm Gavin Reardon and I represent the uh, appellee here, the uh, Condominium Asso Association. Uh, for me professionally, the most disappointing thing over the last 30 years has been realizing how seldom we get to do anything to prevent an injustice. And I genuinely believe that we have one of those opportunities today, even though it's a development and a condominium association, because this case is about a developer who's trying to twist the rules and play games with the civil justice system to get an unfair result. Uh, it wants to take multiple inconsistent positions in multiple cases so that it can in effect have its cake and eat the associations too. Specifically, it wants to be paid in full for the development rights uh, that, it, that it is losing and yet it still wants to be able to use those development rights. And the loser would be the condominium association owners. And to be clear, the condominium association owners, uh, they're okay with, with A, B, or C. They're, they're okay with finding that the Fifth Amendment was invalid, they get all the money. They're okay with finding that the developer lost the right so it gets almost all the money. Or they're okay with finding that the developer should be entitled to develop and the, and the proceeds are gonna get split. What they're not okay with is that the developer gets their, their common areas and also gets the money. Uh, yes. Council, sure. did, uh, did, did the association stipulate to the validity of the Fifth Amendment in the DOT action? No, they, they have never stipulated to the, the amendment. Uh, um, uh, thank you, Justice. Uh, as a matter of fact, the stipulation, and this is, this is a place where in two different places, <coughs> the uh, developers use ellipses to cut out the most important language. Uh, the stipulation provided that the Fifth Amendment was, uh, was binding at that summary judgment hearing, however, preserved the right to fight about it because in the summary judgment hearing, um, Judge Collins already had ruled that it was valid. So in, in, 
and partial summary judgment in the same case. So at the summary judgment, uh, there, there was nothing that the um, Judge Rosier couldn't have overturned it under the one judge rule. At that so time. if I understand you correctly, you're saying essentially what you stipulated to was the fact that another Superior Court judge had already ruled on the issue. Correct. And not only another Superior Court judge, but another Superior Court judge in that case. Because that's one of the big problems with that amendment is that the uh, developer used two different incorrect legal theories for the validity of it. First of all, as, as your, your Honor uh, hit on, they argued collateral estoppel and race judicata when there was no final judgment. So therefore, that Fifth Amendment uh, had no preclusive effect. Second of all, they argued the one judge rule, but the one judge rule only applies in the same action. So neither of those rules should have stopped Judge Collins from independently looking at the, at the validity of that, of that Fifth Amendment. So when the cases are consolidated, how does the one judge rule operate then? Because wouldn't, after consolidation, wouldn't that then become law of the case decided by one Superior Court judge in a previous part of that same case? It would be, and, and, and frankly, uh, uh, Justice Dietz, you're, you're raising, I, I know for Supreme Court ju justices, you're always, what rules are going to come out of this? What, what are the rules of law we're going to give? And I've actually given a lot of thought to that and gave an exhibit that you've all been provided where my trying to walk through this. And that's one of the big questions I'd have on what is the rule. I think when you consolidate three cases, that's the change in circumstances that now allows the new judge to take an independent look at these, at these issues. That, you know, the one judge rule, as, as you well know, isn't hard and fast and says there's no changes that can be happened. When the, thing, when the circumstances change, a judge can take another look at it. I also believe in this case that your honors can make certain findings that will allow the next judge to look at this. And, so yes. one follow-up to that, though. So as I understand it, before, or I guess contemporaneous with the entry of the judgment in the condemnation proceeding, the court split that one off from the other two cases again. So if there was some principle that while they're consolidated together, that finding from the other case that otherwise would not be collateral estoppel is binding, don't, would you lose that if you then split the cases apart again because that was a finding that was made in a separate case that just happened to get brought in and then removed again? Right. How, how would that work? I didn't give that any thought. Um, it's because my thought was once, the, once, <coughs> once, once his honor filed an amended um, order, it was just the first order never existed. So they were never actually consolidated. I didn't view that they were unconsolidated. They were just never consolidated. Um, but I do think there was a moment where he could have ruled on, if he had not unconsolidated them, he could have had them all in front of him and said, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself because, um, I, if I may, Your Honor, I want to cover two things because I think they're important to this. First of all, the uh, Court of Appeals decision, I think, is misapprehended, what it actually said or what it actually did. It did not say that those other actions had to be resolved before the, uh, this action could be determined. It said those actions raised material facts that had to be resolved. And those material facts are, is the Fifth Amendment valid and is reformation appropriate? But it didn't say where those, those facts had to be resolved. So they could be resolved in the, in, in the condemnation action. Uh, or they could be resolved in, um, in, in those separate actions. And I think it's up to the judges potentially at the trial court to figure out who's going to hear them, and really maybe the DOT should just, the action should just stand down until they're decided. 
But the second issue that uh, where I talk about ellipses is that 136.108 is not as the, as the uh, developer characterizes it. It does not say that all issues that go to disbursement and apportionment have to be determined in the, in, in, in the condemnation action. It says all issues raised by the pleadings have to be determined. Well, what are pleadings? We all know under Rule 7, pleadings are a complaint, an answer, cross claims, things like that. Motions are not pleadings. Uh, seeking a 136-108 hearing is not a pleading. There was only two pleadings in this case, the complaint and the joint answer. And that, that joint answer did not raise any of the issues that are being argued about right now. And the, the developer never filed an amended, an amended answer. Once, you know, I, it, we've got a big procedural mess here, and the developer created it. Because the developer who tells you that every issue had to be determined in this case is the one who rushed to another court and started their own case. So I think, you know, fundamentally, judicial estoppel should be, they can't do that. But uh, what they should have done is filed an amended answer in the, in the DOT case if they felt those issues had to be decided in this case, and then raise them in that case. But to say that we haven't raised these issues and that we're foreclosed from, from arguing them going forward is simply not right because these issues have not been raised by the pleadings. And this creates, you know, we've already got the intersection of condemnation law and, and um, condominium law here, but if his rule is right, think of all the problems that's going to cause. Because what he is saying is every issue that goes to how the, the money should be apportioned has got to be determined in a condemnation action. Well, that means every equitable distribution case that involves condemned property has now got to be decided by a superior court judge who is hearing a DOT action. Every place where someone is suing because there was collateralized property is going to have to have their case hauled over here. Adverse possession cases are going to have to be decided in the DOT action. That's not what, what Article 136 was about. Um, so, you know, parties can figure out what are we going to raise in the pleadings. Uh, and there's nothing that prevents the, the, the DOT court from doing what it needs to do uh, if it shows deference to these other actions. It can just stand there. The money's already been paid out. It's not, it, well, it, it probably is going someplace, but, um, you know, it could have just stayed in, stayed in trust and they could have fought over it, over it later. Uh, well, the statute says that the superior courts to hear and determine any and all issues, and it does say raised by the pleadings, but it says, but not limited to if controverted questions of title to land, interest taken. Uh, why couldn't the, at the 108 hearing, the court determine not only the validity of the uh, Fifth Amendment, uh, but also the uh, retention of potential equitable development rights, um, because at some point somebody's got to value those things as of the date of taking, right? Yes, sir. And, and I feel they could have. Uh, but what I don't agree with is this argument that the court had to. And frankly, I don't know that. Uh, it, and I don't think the issue, the reason, the reason the court could have determined those issues, in my opinion, is not 136-108, because 136-108 says these are the issues you have to determine because they were raised. The real statute you look at is 136-117, because that's the statute that says, hey, D hey, condemnation court, it's your job to figure out where the money's going. So this is simply because these are issues that have to be determined for where the money's going. But 136.117 doesn't say the trial court, 
that court has to determine all these issues. So that court could then say, okay, you've got these ancillary proceedings on these necessary issues. I'm just going to stand, stand aside until those issues are determined. You know, 136 is, is a mandate saying you have to do this. Uh, I just don't think it falls under 136-108. But absolutely, the, uh, the condemnation court could have determined these issues. And that's really what should have happened. They should have filed amended answers. They should have fought about it right here instead of having three different proceedings where you get three contrary results in this case. Um, but what they shouldn't be able to do is, is pick and choose. And that's the, the other inconsistent, uh, inconsistent uh, position that's really just should be judicially stopped. It's just unfair. Their argument is that this court was the only place that these important issues could be decided. So what do they do? They ran, they ran to a different superior court in their, the action that they started. They got the answer they wanted, and then they ran back over here saying it's, saying it's got preclusive effect. That's Let me ask you this. Um, should the trial court simply have consolidated all the various claims and decided it in the condemnation action. Absolutely, that would have made everything so much simpler. Okay, so, so as of the date of taking, there is this potential for an equitable extension of the development rights, yes. but we don't know what, whether that would happen. Does that judge also then determine not just the potential, but the actual development right as of the date of taking? I, I believe that judge should, Your Honor. And, you know, and this is an issue that I couldn't find anything on, and I think because it would only come up in this, this sort of um, unusual circumstance. But equitable reformation looks at the party's intent at the time of the formation of the contract. So even though there's a later case, a later judicial action that's going to say we're going to reform it, whether or not you had a right to equitable re uh, reformation existed at the date of taking. So that's how you, you have to figure that out. Did they have a right to equitable reformation at the date of taking? And that decision should be binding going forward. It's either yes, you did, and here's how you get paid, or no, you didn't, here's how you get paid, and, and you, don't, you, you don't get a reformation. And that ends a lot of other follow-on litigation that we would have had. It so could have been can, you, can you raise the, the reformation argument in the 108 hearing? Well, again, or would you need to bring a suit and then say, please consolidate this in so I can litigate this issue? Because that seems very awkward. I don't think they would have, again, and I'm being technical, but that's what y'all y'all do every day. I, I don't believe you do it in a 136-108 hearing because it was not raised by the pleadings. But you don't have to bring it in a separate action. All there needed was an amended answer. As soon as they thought that, that their joint answer didn't work anymore, Somebody should have moved to file an amended answer, and then it's raised by the pleadings, and you can bring it in under. Yeah, I was asking, like in a hypothetical. Imagine you come in and in a plea, you know, any pleading, mm -hmm. one of the parties says, and for purpose of the apportionment, actually, it should be this because we think you need to reform the instrument. Is that in that case, you think that that is something that can happen in the condemnation proceeding? You just are dealing with a. I, I do, okay. and, 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 and frankly, I believe you can do that regardless whether or not it's in the amendment. That's why I keep splitting between this 136, 108, and 117. 117 is much broader. It says that it's the, it's the condemnation court's job to figure out who's getting the money. So I think that means it's got authority to determine every issue that, you know, it has the authority, but it doesn't have the mandate. It isn't, under 117, it's not required 
to determine those answers. So, so if it isn't required, why can't the question of whether there should be equitable reformation uh, uh, be decided in the subsequent litigation? It absolutely could be, and I think that's the other, uh, it, and it could be either or. I, my, my position is it, it doesn't have to be one way or the other. 117, for example, it says that the judge can choose a reference, you know, so it, it tells the trial judge in a condominium action that he's got a lot of, a, a lot of um, latitude in how those factual issues are going to be determined. So I do believe they could be determined in the ancillary actions, and that's why I would really hope First of all, I believe that a Court of Appeals decision should be affirmed, but I also believe some guidance should be given to the lower courts that basically tells them, get this on one page. You know, either figure out you're going to resolve these issues in these other actions and then uh, resolve this part, or you're all going to do it in the condemnation action. And the other part of the Court of Appeals opinion, and they actually kind of, I think, flipped them in order. And um, obviously, they, they talk mostly about the facts and then their analysis is like, um, you know, COA wins on this part, uh, developer wins on this other. But they talk first about these material facts that have to be determined, and then they talk about the expert uh, opinions. Uh, and I think those are flipped because the, what, they're, what I think they're trying to say and what is correct is the reason there are material issues of fact is because the experts' opinions were based on assumptions that had not been proven, that, that there were two issues, the, the validity of the Fifth Amendment and whether or not they'd get equitable reformation. And unless you knew the answers, to those two questions, you couldn't figure out whether it was A, B, or C. So those had to be answered before you know, the, the, the experts' opinions were not self-executing in that regard, which is basically what developer was saying. Why, um, why can't all that be ironed out in this subsequent litigation? The money's already been paid out. Uh, in the uh, subsequent litigation where there's not just the development rights, but you've got issues of the equitable reformation, less development right, but you also have uh, parking ownership and something about a supplemental declaration. Why can't all that be determined? And then if uh, your clients win, uh, then there would be a money judgment. Why, why wouldn't that work out? It, 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 it would work out. I think that the problem is the roadmap is not clear from the statutes. It's not clear from the Court of Appeals uh, decision. It's not clear from uh, the lower court's judgment. That the lower court ju judgment, um, you know, our concern is that the lower court's judgment, uh, if, if affirmed, basically takes that right away. That it makes all these things, look, this is a done deal. Uh, you can't fight about this stuff anymore. And then even if the developer's action uh, uh, changes his interlocutory order, and says, yeah, yeah, that Fifth Amendment is invalid, that we're just basically, um, you know, out in the wilderness on that. And that's what I, you know, what I mean about, you know, we'd look for guidance that basically says, um, look, you can still resolve those things. And I think that's a place where the Court of Appeals leaves that possibility open. The Court of Appeals doesn't say everything has to be decided in those other actions. It doesn't say they, it can't be. It, it just says those issues have to be decided. And frankly, I think you know, and, and if you take a look at uh, ultimately at the, the suggested rulings I've given, I think, again, from judicial estoppel, they didn't raise these issues in the, um, in, in the condemnation action. So the appropriate thing would be for the condemnation action to stand down until those other courts finish their business because the developer chose to start that action. The developer has already said, this is the form in which I want these factual issues determined. 
So let him have what he asked for. And then once those are determined, then you go back to the condemnation court, and the condemnation court says, okay, the factual issues have been determined, boom, here's the formula, we're done. Um, there's really no need for a rush to judgment in the condominium action. The DOT's already paid its money, and really that's what 136.108 is really about, is DOT wants to be able to get in, get the issues resolved, and get on with building a road. Um, so, you know, these other issues, you know, can wait, and that's but what isn't, we would, yes. Isn't part of the argument there, though, that um, it's not so much statutory, but it's constitutional, that the, the government has taken property, and you're entitled to just compensation. So both questions, how much money is the just compensation, but also who gets it, have this constitutional dimension of it needs to happen right away because the, you know, there are people that used to own property here and now they can't use it or, you know, uh, for some of this, it's just been taken and they'll never use it again. And the argument is the court needs to figure out what that just compensation is and pay it to the property owners. And well, so isn't it, th th that's my concern about saying, well, let's, let's litigate these lengthy other cases first and then you'll get your money at the end of that. Well, uh, well, Mr. Justice, I believe that in the uh, peculiar posture of this case, there are no constitutional issues. These are purely contract issues because they filed a joint answer. You know, they had they filed separate answers in the condemnation, condemnation action and asserted these competing interests, that'd be one thing. But at the time of the consent judgment, they're still on the same page. You know, as far as the action's concerned, they are, they're one defendant. And DOT wrote a check and it, it went to them. So, uh, so there were no, you know, they had basically said there are no um, constitutional issues. We're just fighting over a contract at this point. Um, so, and, and that will not necessarily always be the case, but that's the case we have before us today. It's a case where they filed a joint answer and didn't raise these, these issues. Um, does that get to your question? Your Honor? Yeah, although, you know, you sort of, you address my concern, like what about an, another case where the parties are very adverse to each other in terms of apportionment? And they, uh, and they have have all these sorts of claims like this that are going on in other lawsuits. Yes. The idea that we'll say, well, let's wrap up those lawsuits so we have the answers before we tell you how much money you're going to get for the property that's been taken is, seems odd. I, and, and I don't think, and, and the parties would have that within their control. All they would need to do is file a pleading in the condemnation action, which would then give them the right under 108 to force the court to determine those issues. So, I mean, they've got, you know, they've got the, the remedy to their constitutional problems in their own hand just by filing and pleading. Um, that's, you know, this is, uh, um, this is messed up because of how the developer handled it. The rules themselves, I think, can work, uh, or the, the statutes themselves do not create this problem. What created the problem is, is not bringing the, the claims in the condemnation action, but starting a separate action, and then basically disclaiming that separate action when it doesn't serve their purposes. Um, so I, I think, absolutely, 108 would protect the, uh, the litigants you're talking about, or as long as they followed the statute and, and filed a pleading to that effect. One more question, I know yeah. I'm asking a lot of questions. No, the, the, uh, the reformation claim, that's not one that the developer, your friend's not asserting that one, right? That's your claim, so what, uh, so I think they're saying, well, we, you know, what we had no, no reason in the answers to try to raise that and say anything about the Reformation claim. So how does that one get into the 108 hearing and get resolved? Well, without again, consolidating like a separate lawsuit. Um, 
I think if they were alleging reformation, that goes to their, first of all, they would have filed an answer and a cross-claim. Our, our, our answer to their cross-claim would have said, Fifth Amendment is not valid and you don't get to equitably reform. So all of those issues would have then been pled in the condemnation action. So, so to answer your question, well, at that point, it's on us. You know, we, uh, yes, they don't, have to, they don't have to raise it in that action, but we're going to have an opportunity to raise it, and not just an opportunity, but we're going to basically have a call to raise it. At that point in time, when they've, when they've made that cross-claim, if we don't raise it, well, that's on us. But, but the flip side of your question is, we don't have to go raise counters to their issues that they haven't raised. So it's, uh, it's really, if they had just followed the, you know, if they just followed the statute in the condemnation action, we wouldn't be here, I, I don't think. That if they had filed an amended answer saying, hey, we got to decide these issues, then it would have been in front of the, uh, the condemnation court. Judge Collins wouldn't have been looking back to some other court. Judge Collins would have just said, okay, well, I just got to look at this. And, and, and again, I think, you know, one of the reasons they, they argue, don't look at the Fifth Amendment, don't look at the Fifth Amendment, is because it is patently invalid. There's no question that that Fifth Amendment is, is invalid. Because, and again, this is a place where they pull an ellipsis sort of thing, where they take something out of context. The, you know, the, the statute doesn't say that any amendment that gets filed, uh, you know, is, is, is valid after a year. It says any statute that was properly approved, that was approved um, in accordance with the statute or the declaration, is valid after one year. But on its face, this amendment was invalid because it was increasing the declarant's rights by, by allowing him to continue to construct long after he would have been, and it was only approved by 67% of the owners when any, any uh, amendment that increases declarant rights has to be approved by 100% of the owners, unanimous. So on its face, it's invalid. That's why they say, don't look at it, don't look at it, don't look at it. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but. Uh, did any of your honors have, have any questions uh, about where I was at at that point? Okay. Um, <clears throat> if I may, um, and you know, my proposal for, uh, and, and it's not complete because your honors have, have raised multiple excellent questions that I hadn't, honestly hadn't really considered. Um, but you know, that uh, it's clear looking at the statutes that uh, that a condemnation court under 108 only extends to issues raised by the pleadings. For purposes of 108, pleadings are what Rule 7 says. Um, and then I would say that there should be a ruling that where, where all parties uh, that claim they hold the interest file a joint answer and no one moves to file an amended pleading, but they file claims in other actions, then those actions were not raised by the pleadings and did not fall under 108. And uh, that where they are engaged in separate litigation, um, that if they want to have it determined in the condemnation action, they need to file an amended pleading. But that amended pleading would be subject to Rule 15. Like for, you know, they waited so long that at this point if they tried to bring an amendment in the condemnation action, I, you know, I think the, the, the trial court should say, no, you chose those forums over there, we'll see you when you get done. Um, and I, again, I think just judicial estoppel cuts off several of their arguments that you know, they shouldn't be allowed to make inconsistent claims in multiple places. Um, I also think that this may be an opportunity for the court to look at the equitable reformation issue uh, just as a rule of law, because it would seem to me that if you're paid 100% of the value of something uh, uh, for losing a right, then it is simply not equitable for, then, for you to then be able to use that right. 
Isn't that an argument that you would make in the separate proceeding if it were to go forward? Absolutely, Your Honor. Absolutely. Um, obviously, I would love Your Honors to, to you know, clarify some things. To, to uh, We'd like to not be here again. You know, we'd like to not be here in the, in the 2015 action, the 2016 action, this action again. Uh, so we'd like as much clarity going forward so that these courts know, not just, not just the DOT court, but that the other courts know, no, look, guys, get on the same sheet of music. Uh, this is where you're at. Um, and so one last question. Just yes. to understand. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I can't fit together the two different parts of the Court of Appeals opinion, the first of which says uh, there are fact issues from these other cases, and then the second is you don't have to consolidate the cases. But my understanding, your, is it because your interpretation is when the court said there are fact issues from these other cases, what the Court of Appeals was really saying is these are genuine issues of material fact in the condemnation proceeding and that need to go back to that court and be decided in that context, not we need to find out what other courts are going to do about it. And there's essentially a race to the courthouse to some extent over if one of those gets the final judgment before the other and we'll find the other lawsuit. Is that that's your position? Um, I think mostly, Your Honor. I, I, I would start that our position is your position also. Um, you know, frankly, you know, we threw up our hands with, you know, why didn't they, why didn't they order consolidation? This would just make everything so much simpler. Um, but we didn't do a P PDR on that, and that's the biggest reason, you know, we're not arguing for it in, in that regard. But that's the way to fix everything. Everything should be in one pot. You know, there should be one judge hearing all these issues. And, and, and a judge, for some of the issues, for example, in the action that we brought, have nothing to do with, with where the money goes. So, you know, so a judge could resolve the key issues and then may say, okay, uh, you know, issue a final judgment in the condemnation action, and the other two actions would go on to things like parking and things like that. But, um, but yes, the only way I can resolve the Court of Appeals decision, uh, because of the fact that they didn't, uh, overturn the consolidation issue is by them saying, look, the issues have to be determined, but we didn't say who, where they get determined. So trial courts, you figure out who's, who's, who's got it. Obviously, that's always a horrible solution because you've got the rush to, rush to final judgment and you, you're, you've inherently got the problem with, with uh, potential inconsistent verdicts. So ideally, and of course, this court has, has the, the power to make these decisions, we would like to see an order that says, look, consolidate all these things, get it done. Uh, there's also an argument uh, that was made that we waived the issue of the Fifth Amendment. We don't feel we did. We said we're going to fight it. We're, we're not sure this is the right place to do it. We're going to fight it where it originally was. If, if it's viewed that we waived that issue, we would ask, uh, you know, through our, through our, our, our brief, we would ask that, that the court use its authority under Rule 2 to waive that rule so that, again, we can get to the right result. We can get everything resolved in one place um, because clearly when you read everything, we, the, the association has never conceded the validity of that of that amendment. Um, they filed two interlocutory appeals trying to fight it, but then they realized, you know, the interlocutory appeals aren't aren't the way to do it, and it was brought in a different action. That's why they they thought, okay, we got to go fight it in that action when that action's done. So so again, if uh, if it appears uh, to your honors that we abandoned it under the rules, then we just ask that you give rule two relief so that we can try to get everything done and also try to get the just and fair result. Because ultimately, that is what the association wants. Like we say, we'll take, we'll take A, we'll take B, we'll take C, but uh, the, the, uh, the developer shouldn't be able to get column B and column C. Uh, if your honors have any other questions. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today.
Thank you, Council. Rebuttal. The developer has been fall, uh, criticized for wanting its cake and eating its too, eating, eating it too. And I, I'm, I was just sitting there thinking about it. This is more like the fable of the little red hen. The developer started purchasing this property in 2001, suffered through the 2008-2009 financial crash, and has hung on and through sweat equity and. He is the sole per person who has uh, invested any money in this project. Everything that's been done was done by him. And now that there's a pot of money, the Homeowners Association comes forward and wants it all. I, I, but there again, to Justice Newby's point, that's an equitable argument that we can make in the Reformation claim. I want to be clear with Justice Allen. I, I, mentioned the uh, what I was reading from where there was a the parties had agreed that it was encumbered by the Fifth Amendment is the consent judgment on page 17 17 that was the consent judgment with DOT then after that point when I filed the motion to disperse for the first time the issue was raised about the validity of the Fifth Amendment and that's why uh, it was then raised in the in, in the in the 136 108 hearing later in page on page 100 of the record there are formal stipulations that the parties entered into for the hearing of the summary judgment motion and in that stipulation it says the fifth amendment is valid but parenthetically subject to right of appeal I, I don't want to I don't want you to think I misled the court on that I was reading from the consent judgment signed by the homeowners association and Justice Newby, with respect to a question you asked me um, about the 2015-16 cases, one thing I didn't make clear was that the 2015 case has about 100 parties. There's uh, all of the unit holders were deemed necessary parties, so th they're not all the same parties. And in the 2016 case, there's an additional corporate party that's not a party to this action. So let's, let's say that the HOA prevailed with regard to the Fifth Amendment in the subsequent cases. Uh, what would be their remedy with regard to these dispersed funds in the condemnation? I think the remedy would be the same remedy that would occur if, if a condemnor took property and the landowner withdrew the, the money, the condemnor's remedy at that point is it becomes a judgment on the property. And I believe it would, that they can sue Bloomsbury Estates or the court could enter a judgment on the property. Uh, this phase two property is about a half acre. It's very valuable. It's in downtown uh, Raleigh. Actually, it's where the very old courthouse used to be. Uh, and so it would be a judgment on, against Bloomsbury Estates LLC and a judgment that would attach to the land. The, the developer is faulted for not raising this in the pleadings but again the the parties had had agreed in the consent judgment that the Fifth Amendment was valid and we raised as soon as uh, their motion was filed we asked to have that issue resolved and the court did exactly what the associations asking the court to do and that's to resolve the apportionment issue under 116 excuse me 136 117 that's exactly what the court did and entered a final judgment. 
uh, and I'll take issue with the validity of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, we absolutely believe it's valid. The parties took a position in this particular lawsuit that it's valid. Uh, and, but as I've indicated before, they've abandoned any argument to the contrary before this court. If the court would exercise its discretion under Rule 2 to, to hear issues with respect to the validity of the Fifth Amendment, I would respectfully request an opportunity to respond by briefing. One more issue is that the argument is that the developer is getting 100% of the value of phase two. It's true that that's the, they're getting 100% of the value as uh, contemplated under eminent domain law. And then under North Carolina eminent domain law, uh, business owners don't get lost income, lost profits, lost opportunities. That's not compensable. Uh, but that is an argument we can make. In, in some states, that's not the case. Uh, Texas, New Mexico, some other cases allow lost profits. And, and not only would he be given the raw land value, but also uh, the anticipated, reasonably anticipated lost profits. But there again, that's something that can be argued in this uh, reformation case, which is occurring after the date of taking. Thank you very much. It is a privilege to be here. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both.